Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. My name is Robert Fay. I'm in Beaverton, Oregon, and I'm joined by Roman Sivkin, who is in Los Angeles, California uh, this Woo! week after his uh, transcontinental journey from New York and across the Willamette River. We have Heston Hoffman, our sound engineer in inner southeast Portland. So we've got the band together and we're all on um, West Coast time. And, um, you know, Roman, you you just uh, you had a four day journey across um, the U.S. You guys are temporarily relocating from New York and you're staying in Southern California in L.A. Any um, any observations about bombing across the country in, oh, in, a, well, in a pandemic? Yes, it was a bit of a blur, um, but I think it was a, less of a blur for me than for my wife because I did most of the, the driving. Uh, mm. I just feel better behind the driver's seat, I guess. Um, and it was fantastic to go across the Rockies, which I've never visited before. We went uh, through Denver, and it was just fantastic to see the Rockies. It, it gave me uh, it gave me this enormous high, Rocky Mountain high. <laughs> uh, I just love mountains in general, uh, which ties into our theme today of, of Zen and Taoism, because uh, this kind of a, especially Taoism tends to be a, a mountain type of religion <laughs> or philosophy. And so I really enjoyed that. And then coming down from the Rockies, just just a varied landscape, just to see how various states are handling COVID. That was a bit eye-opening as well. Uh, hint, not well. Um and, you know, just, just being on the road after being cooped up in New York for so many months, uh, being on the open road, seeing this beautiful open country with all of its problems uh, kind of renewed my hope a little bit. I know things are not going well, um, but being uh, it felt like being let out of the cage a little bit. Uh, New York was the cage, I guess. Um, so now we're in a slightly different cage, but this cage, uh, first of all, it's just being outside, the, the weather, the, the climate caresses you as opposed to New York's climate, which just hammers you, you know, hammers you with humidity and heat and just being uncomfortable at any time you step outdoors. Here you step outdoors, you're just being caressed by the environment. And I remember when you're living here for a decade, I just remember that now. And how quickly we forget that living in New York for 15 years, you just go outside and you're just cowering from the weather, from the climate. Here it's the opposite. So... Really lovely to be back on the West Coast, being closer to you guys, uh, being out of the sort of pressure cooker of New York City. Um, looking forward to, uh, to also coming back to New York at some point because we it is kind of our city. We feel like, you know, partly at least New York as New Yorkers and uh, we'll be back. But right now I'm totally cool with wandering and, and checking things out and then just hankering, hunkering in place uh, once we do uh, finish our self-quarantine. Nice. Yeah. yeah, no, very cool. And, and you, you know, you kind of hinted at, um, you know, what we're going to talk about today, which is, you know, Zen and, and Taoism um, and a little bit about some of the books we've come across. But I think primarily, you know, you and I had, you know, ver very um, direct and personal experiences with um, with Zen in particular um, as a practice. And it, you know, I, I think probably my earliest memory of that is, um, I mean, number one, in high school, um, you were already reading books about, you know, Taoism, which is kind of astounding thinking about the suburb we grew up in. But I think like, 
one of the, the, the most important memories I have is probably in um, 96 or 97, we were living in Boston. And I remember one night you came home and you said, you know, there's a Zen center in Cambridge, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and mm. they have a um, they have an introduction to uh, Zazen, which is sitting meditation on Monday nights. And you said, do you want to go? And, and <laughs> you know, I had been reading about Zen as you had primarily secondhand through the beats. So so I had an idea of I kind of attached it to the beat idea of bohemianism and, and getting out of this Western Judeo-Christian mindset. So um, I was expecting, I don't know, something revolutionary or something radical. And so we, I remember we took the subway, the red line from uh, Dorchester over to Cambridge. It was a Monday night. I think it was in autumn. I, I remember very distinctly walking into the Zen Center feel, feeling very uncomfortable because, right, it's an environment you don't know what to expect. They asked us to take off our shoes. And I can still remember putting our shoes in these little uh, <laughs> cubbies. Right. And, um, you know, we were led into a room um, and there were uh, zafus, which are meditation cushions. And we sat down and, you know, contrary to what I expected, maybe some, you know, crazy, uh, you know, Japanese monk with a beard down to the floor. You know, these were very grounded, very sensible, mostly, you know, young American Zen students and Zen teachers. And they, you know, they, they. you know, took us through the basics of breathing and, and Zen meditation and what it meant. And I, and I can remember taking the subway home that night and, and you and I were in a, a real state, right? I think mm. we had really mm. been affected by, by that experience. And so, um, you know, not soon after I, I moved to Arizona and you moved to California and you, um, you pursued that and you got involved in, uh, the Kwanam School of Zen, which is a Korean lineage, and um, they had branches in Long Beach and Los Angeles, and um, the, the Zen Center in Cambridge had been uh, the Kwanam School of Zen. Um, and so that kind of, you know, kicked off, I mean, it was an intellectual experience. We, we read lots of Zen books, but you, um, you became very involved in um, that school. You became a teacher. And I also, um, when I moved to California, I also got involved. I took Buddhist precepts. I mean, we were involved. And, yeah, um, no, we were definitely sitting on that on those zafus for many, many hours, yeah. many weeks, and, many years. <laughs> and and so, you know, there's a million ways we could talk about this today. But I, I guess the reason I wanted to talk about it was we're all struggling on some level because none of us have the lives we used to have, right? None of us have the lives that we had before March. And so I, I feel as somebody who had a strong period of say Catholic spirituality and then Zen Buddhism, and I've left both behind, I I'm, I'm puzzled why in particular I haven't returned to Zen practice because it was so good for me. And I guess I'd have the same question for you because I would argue that some of your best years Mm. um, were when you were heavily involved in um, being a teacher in California. Um, And I think you 
were a pretty grounded, happy guy. Not to say you aren't now, but there was something special going on there. So, well, so what's wrong with yeah. this? Why, why did we turn our backs on something? That well, was- I'll tell you, for me in particular, because I was still uh, you know, relatively young, my 30s, when I really got into this, and uh, having a regular practice, I mean, for a long, from, for a long time, for a few years, it was just me and, and this guy who was running the Zen Center, Paul. Uh, yeah, I would show up. I would get in my car early in the morning, get 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 there at six o'clock, and it would just be me and him at the Zen place that he ran and also lived in, and we'd just be meditating. We'd do our chanting, do our meditation, and I'd go back home, and occasionally I'd do retreats and stuff like that. But I think because I was also a parent, a, a young parent at that time, and for me that was the real test um, of of Zen practice uh, or just in general, I guess meditation practice because. It, um, especially coming home, let's say, after a three-day retreat at the Zen Center, and you know, I'd come home, and it would be kind of chaos around me, you know. Uh, my kid, no one was running around, something was wrong, my wife is uh, frustrated about something. And as soon as I would show up, uh, things would just kind of calm down, because my my whole, I guess, aura or something, my vibes are very chilled from all this meditation. And I sp- distinctly remember uh, that this ability to calm people around me, to solve issues, to make people comfortable, and to reduce the anxiety level, not just of myself through meditation, but of those around me. And that really that really uh, highlighted the, the value of this practice. Now, I think what happened with the years, Rob, is that, first of all, I moved around. I, I, I went to New York. I checked at the, the Quantum Center in New York, and, you know, it was good, but... It was kind of a little far, far too, too far for me to get to on a regular basis. Um, and also, I was, um, I, I came to Zen through Taoism. Um, I, I think I just tweeted, uh, well, you tweeted the picture of the Taoist Silent uh, by Raymond Smullyan. Uh, uh, that was a pivotal book for me even before I got into Zen. Um, so Taoism sort of predated Zen for me. And Taoism is, um, and I'm talking about specific a specific version of Taoism. I'm not talking about the metaphysical religious Taoism that developed with all the various, you know, uh, trappings of religion, but I'm really specifically talking about philosophical Taoism that has no metaphysical baggage. And it's exactly this philosophical Taoism of Zhuangzi and, and Lao Tzu that combine with the, the sort of, you know, Buddhism. Buddhism in itself is, is all about, I mean, I shouldn't say all about, but it's, it's about denial. It's about nothing you don't you you want to depend on nothing right so there's this this kind of subtraction subtraction not this not this not this you know always to be grounded Taoism is its exact opposite it's the acceptance the happy acceptance of everything including the messy bits so it's all inclusive all accepting buddhism is sort of all denying again i'm, I'm obviously you know you can argue these points but but in, in the basic sense, that's true. And so what happens when you combine them, boom, you get Zen. You get this combination of this, this traditional Buddhism and then this, this, this wide vastness, wide open vastness of Taoism. And you put them together and you have Zen. And that's what I think attracted me to Zen. And as Raymond Smullyan says in that book, Zen is basically uh, a lot of Buddhism with, 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 with pepper thrown in. There's a lot of pepper on it. Because it's, it's a spicy, it's a spicy thing. You know, Zen teachers hit you with their sticks. They, they say incomprehensible things. Um, you know, they, there's a lot of pepper in it. So it's like yeah. a spicy thing. Taoism is just mellow. It's sweet. 
And again, yeah. like I said, it's accepting everything. So, so as I sort of transitioned out of regular Zen meditation, I also came across uh, a wonderful contemporary um, interpreter of Taoism, a philosophical Taoism, not religious Taoism. And again, I, I mentioned it before, and I, I want to make sure that it, before we, I forget, I want to mention this guy, Scott Bradley, B-R-A-D-L-E-Y, Scott P. Bradley is his middle initial. He self-published a bunch of commentary on, on, on Zhuangzi or Zhuangzi um, that is, I think, some of the clearest, most uh, most precise uh, and interesting and fun to read commentary on, on what philosophical Taoism is and how it can make a difference to us right now. Like um, the, the title of his first book is All is Great, All is Well in the Great Mess. So... That's the, that's the basic Taoist approach to things. So, for instance, we have this enormous great mess right now, right? It feels more than the usual mess of the world. We have a real, I think, any, you point to anybody, they'll say, yes, it's a freaking mess right now. But so as a Taoist, how do you say all is well in this situation? Obviously, all is not well, at least to, to your regular perception or regular perception. So this Taoism... It's not sugarcoating it. It's not some sort of a uh, navel gazing. It's not some sort of a dream world. It's just accepting things as they are. And and I think part of the Zen meditation that we were trying to do was this discipline. You you you. This is something you have to do in order to get to something, some sort of enlightened state, or at least some sort of a more chill state. And this is exactly what Scott Bradley argues against, at least as far as philosophical Taoism is. It's this trying. This trying is antithetical to to this natural philosophical attitude of Taoism. You don't try; you just accept things as they are, and you roll with them. Um, you know, a lot of the Taoists, yeah. the, the most the most prevalent Taoist metaphor is water. Water just goes around obstacles. It seeks the lowest ground. It's it's always it's always free to move around. You know. Um, so that's why I sort of went back to sort of my Taoist initial inklings or initial inclinations towards Taoism, and I consciously decided not to make meditation something that I think is so good for me, because that attitude is also antithetical to that kind of yeah. thinking. You know? Yeah, it, it's. I think that's interesting, right, to, to point out that you had a, a Taoist framework before you rolled into right. Zen. And, and for me, I had a, a Catholic framework before I rolled into Zen. And, and it was the Catholic framework that led me out of Zen because of some of the questions I had. And, and then, you know, ultimately, I just rolled out of the Catholic Church for obvious reasons, or maybe not obvious reasons, but many reasons. Mm. Um, but, you know, for me, I, because Zen had, um, it had a, a hierarchy of teachers, it had uh, robes, it had uh, iconography in a sense. It had a certain aesthetic. You know, a Zen center had, um, you know, a statue of Buddha and um, calligraphy paintings. You know, you could, you could, it wasn't, you know, a statue of the, the Blessed Mother and, um, you know, a crucifix. But it, it was comforting me in some way that there, there was a very visible structure. And as you said, there was a... Um, you know, the, 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 the sitting meditations were the mass, so to speak. And, and so I sort of, um, I, I think was attracted to that part of it or found that familiar, 
But what really cut through for me and, and opened my eyes was, um, you know, Catholic spirit, spirituality centers around prayer, right? Which is essentially communication with, with God or, or sharing your thoughts with God. And it most of the time feels like a one-way conversation. And it also just feels, frankly, strange. You know, you, you sit on your knees and you sort of talk into the, into the, you know, the netherworld, where the thing that really attracted me about uh, Zen meditation was the focus on your thoughts and on your mind. And so if you understand... There's no metaphysical component. I mean, there is a metaphysical exactly. component, but it's, it's minimized and it's not talked about, you know... When, and, when you meet the Buddha on the road, what do you do? You kill right. the Buddha. That's and, the saying. Zen. And, and for, for folks who aren't that familiar with Zen, um, I want to read a, a little passage from a book that I think will give you a sense of the, the, the Zen approach to this, this sort of non-metaphysical approach, but also a bit of this Korean approach that we were exposed to, which had a certain um, flavor to it. And, and so the the Zen master who had founded the Kwanam School of Zen, his name was Zen Master Sung Sang. And he had come to the United States, uh, I think first to Providence, Rhode Island, and had created a, a Zen community around the university there. Um, was it around uh, uh, Brown? It was around Yale, Yale University. Yale, believe, okay, yes. yeah. So, um, uh, so he, he wrote a wonderful book, or I should say it's a book of, of letters to students called Dropping Ashes on the Buddha, which I assume you remember, Roman. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's uh, letters from Zen students who are, you know, whatever, I'm sitting meditation, my mind won't stop working, I can't settle down, yada, yada, yada. And so they would write letters to him. And here's a typical response, which I think captures the flavor of Sung Sa, but also I think what I really find appealing about Zen. So, uh, dear Patricia, thank you for your letter. How are you? In your letter, you said that you have read many books about Zen. That's good. But if you are thinking you can't understand Zen, anything that can be written in a book, anything that can be said, all this is thinking. If you are thinking, then all Zen books, all Buddhist sutras, all Bibles are demons' words. But if you read with a mind that has cut off all thinking, then Zen books, sutras, and Bibles are all the truth. <laughs> so. So is the barking of a dog or the crowing of a rooster. All things are teaching you at every moment. And these sounds are even better teaching than Zen books. So Zen is keeping the mind, which is before thinking. Sciences and academic studies are after thinking. We must return to before thinking. Then we will attain our true self. I mean, I, I can't imagine a paragraph that better summarizes the approach. Yeah, and and, and there's, so much, there's so much going on there. But... Um, I think it's worth noting that a lot of Westerners and a lot of Americans who are attracted to Zen have intellectual leanings. I mean, I think we can verify well, a that. Well, a lot of his first sort of followers or people who were attracted to uh, what he had to say were people in graduate school that eventually became professors. Our Zen master, Bob yes. Moore, was, yes. uh, is a full professor at USC, you know. So, yeah, yes. a, lot of, a lot of intellectuals were attracted to that for sure. Um, I mean, so you, you, got, really, you got Alan Watts, you got all this kind of background of how Buddhism entered America and sort of influenced things. Uh, there's many books written about that as well. And I think Sung Sung was, was kind of part of that, though he was also part of that early because this started in the yes. 70s. 
Absolutely. And, and I think um, so when you, you know, intellectuals who um, are always kind of in their head, so to speak, it, it uh, you, you have to sort of bring them out of that. And, and that appealed to me. And, and that's something where when I think back on what do I miss about Zen? Um, I miss, uh, you know, they'd be like, you know, correct me if I can't remember, but there'd be like, what, a Sunday morning uh, sitting session and then maybe like Wednesday night or something like that. Yeah, twice and I, yeah, and I can recall, I recall one session, I don't think you were there because we used to carpool uh, up to Long Beach. And I can remember uh, like a Wednesday night sitting and we, you know, we sat for 20 minutes, then we did walking meditation and then we did sitting and then I think there was a brief talk or something and then we left. And I remember... I was maybe still struggling with uh, with cigarettes, with smoking. And I remember pulling into a convenience store in Long Beach and I walked in and um, I'm, I'm, if I remember correctly, it was um, an Arab gentleman who was running the store. And I'm not the kind of person that, that talks to cashiers or people in public. I'm just not that friendly. I mean, quite frankly, <laughs> but I, I was extremely grounded and I was open. I, I wasn't analyzing the world as I usually am. I wasn't judging, analyzing, none of that. And I just walked in. I saw this you know, human being behind the counter and I asked for cigarettes. And we had this really, really interesting conversation, which I, I don't recall any of it. But it was such an interesting experience. And I felt so connected to him uh, as a human being. And I felt like I think a lot of times I, I see people as just I don't notice them. They're they're just background scenery. Mm. Um, and I lament that a lot, you know. Um, and so Zen kind of brought me out of my head and I think allow, allowed me to um, to connect more with people around me. And, and that would lend itself to the kind of calm that I think you were getting at, you know, mm. in your domestic situation where my my thoughts, if I'm having, you know, really positive thoughts, I mean, that can be great, but I'm, I'm in, enchanted. And I think that's the right word, really enchanted by those. But then, you know, here it is Sunday. I do have to go to work tomorrow. And if I really thought much about that, there's probably, you know, six things on my plate tomorrow that could cause me some consternation, right? And, and so I, I tend to think about, um, you know, things that aren't particularly positive. So I tend to focus on those negatives. And Zen allowed me to kind of see the thoughts. Okay, here's that line of, of investigation going through my mind. Mm. And I'm not going to be attached to that. Um, and again, it wasn't an intellectual decision, but what you find over months and months of sitting meditation regularly, and, and you might be able to articulate it better because you used to actually teach some of this, is um, it, it's almost like a, um, a, a perpetual house cleaning. And, mm. and it tends to um, uh, wear down the the um, the persistence of your thoughts, or or at least you you just sort of watch them, and they don't trigger an emotional reaction right. in, in your body, and so um, so that's interesting. But well, to, to, to tie it, one more thought, but just to tie it back to Taoism, is there is a great effort in going to the Zen center and sitting. I mean that that. That requires a great amount of effort. And, you know, effort is effort. 
you know, we're all procrastinators on some level. Right. But look, I mean, the whole Taoism approach is not to say because it's effort, I'm not going to do it because that's against my religion or my philosophy because I'm a Taoist. That's not – see, Taoism, again, is the happy acceptance of everything. And when they say everything, they mean it. Um, so even if it's a negative thing. So if for some reason the your intuition moves you to get in the car or to get on the bike and get to the Zen Center and sit – for a weekend or a month or seven years, then that's what you do. You happily accept it. You go along with that. It's that it's those inner thoughts that start kind of battling inside you, and you start getting led by them. Uh, my my one of my favorite metaphors for meditation, when well, at least the, the the sort of phenomenological phenomenological process that goes on during a meditation um, is that you are observing your thoughts, and they're like trains. The idea is to observe the trains. You're never going to get rid of the trains. You're always going to have thinking. I think even at the most meditative state, this, you know, you 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 have a you're you're conscious. You're this something happening in your brain. Uh, but the idea is to not to get on those train thoughts. To watch them in the train yard or whatever passing by. Uh, but to not hop on them. It's so easy. I still do it on a regular basis. You just you know you find yourself daydreaming or. Or just thinking about something and you're like, wait a second, where, where's my mind? Where, where is it? Right here. And you have to, that's why Zen masters like to whack and make yes. noise, make sharp noises and just to kind of shake you out of that, like, get off the fucking train and be here now. And, and, and so hold that thought and I want to tie in what, exactly what you're saying. And, and I almost want, if you can kind of um, help us break down this particular paragraph, which speaks to what you're talking about. And this is another classic book, which had a huge influence on me and thousands of others. It's called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Oh, yeah. And it's by the Japanese Zen master, uh, Shunryu Suzuki. And this book is incredible. And one of the most lasting kind of metaphors that he uses is mind weeds, right? So he, he mm -hmm. refers to these as mind weeds. And, and so this to me, gets at a bit of the contradiction here, and, and maybe you can talk us through this a little, Roman. So he wrote, strictly speaking, any effort we make is not good for our practice. Now, this almost sounds Taoist mm -hmm. because it creates waves in our mind. It is impossible, however, to attain absolute calmness of our mind without any effort. Mm -hmm. We must make some effort, but we must forget ourselves in the effort we make. In this realm, there is no subject subjectivity or objectivity. Our mind is just calm without even any awareness. Um, so, so there we go. That, that again, is a very representative uh, passage. And before you help us understand it, I, I would just throw in that forgetting yourself is also a massive part of Christian spirituality. And I'm not talking about dudes who go to you know, Sunday worship service and then whatever. I'm talking deeply spiritual Christians who pray constantly. And, and one of the things that they try to is simply to forget oneself, right? Mm. To, mm. To, to, you know, if you read um, uh, Thomas Akempis, the medieval treatise on Christian spirituality called an imitation, um, The Imitation of Christ, you know, you, you simply, you focus on Jesus because he is the model. And what Jesus focused on is the suffering of others, right? So, mm -hmm. so that becomes your way of forgetting self. But, but this passage, Roman, this is, um, 
we 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 can't make an effort, but we have to make an effort. Right. Well, that's that's the basic paradox, at least taken from our logical, you know, Western type of mind. That's the basic paradox of Eastern religion, right? Is like if you make an effort to achieve enlightenment, then it's not really that's not the right way. However, you can't achieve enlightenment without making an effort. You know, it's it's kind of a catch twenty two, but only if viewed from a certain logical position. If viewed from a practical position, then it's no problem. No problem. You just do it, you know, like the Nike commercials. You just do it. They kind of they kind of took over the whole Zen and Taoism attitude. You just do it. Um, one of my favorite stories uh, from Zhuang Tzu is the happiness of fish. Uh, he's taking a stroll uh, in a nice, uh, you know, nice area. He's walking with his friend, his, the logician. He's, he's got a, you know, kind of a, a foil, like a guy who kind of was going to ask him all these questions, uh, his friend, the logician, Hui Tsi. And they come across a, a brook, and there's a bunch of fish swimming in the brook. And Chuang Tzu says, you know, these fish are happy. And the logi- his friend, logician friend goes, how do you know they're happy? And, there's a, and then they start arguing a little bit. And finally, Chuang Tzu says, I know they're happy because I'm standing here. Because he's there. He's present. So that's how that's how you... I think you have to approach things like that. Uh, yes, you have to maybe initially set some sort of direction and say, I'm going to meditate every morning. I'm going to go to the Zen center. I'm going to go to the church. So you set yourself some sort of a path and then you just walk it because the only way to get anywhere is by walking a path. The trick with the trick I love about Zhuangzi and, and philosophical Taoism is that he says you have to walk two paths. There are two paths to walk. One is this kind of this, this path that we can't really talk about, this metaphysical path that we don't really talk about because there's really no metaphysical component because Taoists like Zhuangzi don't even have to prove that Tao, is, that Tao exists. That's why Christianity and Judaism are, are so enmeshed in, in, their, in their battles because they keep trying to prove the existence of God or, or atheists or agnostics try to prove the non-existence of God because look how silly it is. It's making everybody miserable. And of course, Christians and, and, and other monotheists say, no, we have to believe in God because that's un- un- the unbelievers who are ma- making a mess of it. So they keep fighting and there seems to be no end to it. A Taoist or, or a Zen master would just cleave right, right in the middle of that and say, you just do it. You just walk this path, even though there's a shadow path that we can't really talk about. It's like Wittgenstein, right? Like a late Wittgenstein. And here's what I want to sort of get drunk again this is something we talked about during our musil um episode we're talking to janice uh, and i said uh, there's a, a quote from drunk so saying is not blowing breath saying says something right when we're talking right now we're saying something however the only trouble is that what it says is never fixed so it's a flux state of sign and signified what drunk calls the potter's wheel of heaven and so we can. It's it's a it's a it's it's something that happens by walking it, by talking it, by walking it, by thinking it. It's not something that you can take a step outside of it and say, "Here it is. Here is God. Here is the Tao." No, you flow. You flow. And I, I think the psychological terms like flow, and you're being in the zone, which were popularized by Western psychology just a few decades ago, really came from Taoism and Zen. I mean, this is a a really good sort of Taoist and, and Zen approach, your, your flow. You, if you, as soon as you stop and you start examining things with your logical mind, you're out of that flow. However, a really good Taoist would say, that's cool too, because that's what's happening. 
Again, it's the happy acceptance of everything. It's hard to accept the happy acceptance of everything, isn't it, Rob? <laughs> we keep fighting yeah. it. We're like, but but this, but that, but the pandemic, but the, all the horrors of the world. How come you not just, you know, how can you accept that? Well, if we are living our lives to its their fullest, we have to because that's what's happening. Mm. And again, I go back to people like Bukowski, who was you know, being interviewed by a TV crew. And Bukowski is an alcoholic poet, L.A. poet, probably, I mean, you probably read about Taoism, but he's not, you know, he's not a Zen Taoist guy. But he is because in his being, he had this uh, happy acceptance of everything. And, you know, the, the, the TV interviewer asked him, you know, what, you know, you're walking into the smog. This was in, in 70s L.A. and he walks out in the street and there's a smog hits them. And and Bukowski goes, ah, you smell that? That smog. I love it. And the, the interviewer <laughs> goes, why? Why do you love smog? And he goes, because that's what is. And this yeah. paradoxical acceptance of horrible things, uh, because they're simply there, um, is I think what what I'm trying to again achieve. Trying to achieve is just an, yeah. a bad way of putting it. But I'm I'm yeah. sort of. I, I sort of step back from the active Zen participation into just trying to be breathing everything in and not letting but, it, not, not crossing anything out. Right. But, but how shall I say, but having said all of that, I feel like I'm, I'm always going to suffer a bit more without meditation. That, that not meditating is almost a, there, there are just things like, like for example, before this podcast, I, I went for a jog. So this is, this is a lifetime habit that I've been able to hang on to um, wherever I've been. And, and I, I continue to do it. And because um, at this point, I find my mind and body don't really want to do it. But once I get back from it and I shower, my goodness, I still, I still really, really appreciate what that does for me. And, and, and I know that meditation um, will deliver that. But yet I don't, yeah. yet I don't do it. And, and um, it's interesting, Roman, I, um, so I've been in Oregon for about three and a half years. And, um, you know, and I say this because you're, you're in a, a bit of a transition right now yourself, right? And I, I moved to Oregon from California. And I was, uh, you know, feeling like this would be a good time to revisit Zen. And so um, the Quanam School of Zen doesn't have a, a school in Portland, but there were, you know, as you'd expect, several, several Zen centers. So there was one uh, near my house and I went on, you know, there like whatever, Monday night, you know, everyone's welcome kind of thing. And so I went and it was funny, I, I brought my, I still have my old cushion, Roman, my old Zafu. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's me a buck, too. <laughs> a buckwheat. Um, yep, yep. You know, and, and I got it from, um, what was that New Age bookstore in Los Angeles? I believe uh, The tr Bodhi Tree. The Bodhi Tree, right. Yes. So I bought it from the Bodhi Tree probably 20 years ago. Um, so I, you know, I walked in there with uh, the Zafu under my arms and, and it, you know, this is a small suburban Zen center and everybody's like, wow, who's this guy, you know? And, yeah, right. He's got his own. It's like, you know, bringing your own cue stick into a pool hall or something, right? You must be a shark. Yeah, exactly. So, um, 
So I, you know, I sat and, and then they had walking meditation and then there was like a tea break and kind of chatted with people. And then after the tea break, they had like, I'm going to say like a Dharma teacher in training who kind of was going to give a talk. And, and so I listened, but after being out of that and after being away from, you know, the Catholic world and, and really happily being away from, you know, institutions, I, I just found it painful to suddenly remember that being in a Zen center, everyone is using Zen lexicon, right? Mm. So there's a certain terminology. There's a certain like way you talk about everything, whether it's right, your right. spouse or political troubles. And I, and I just thought, I don't want this, you know? Right. And it, it made me think about I can't remember the name of the uh, the book, but Zen Without Zen Masters, was that a book that you had? Oh yeah, Camden Benares, one of the Discordians, uh, one of the gem of a book, yes. Zen is, Without is, Zen Masters. Is that in your book collection still that's in uh, my garage? Or? You should root around, <laughs> it should be in there somewhere, yes. <laughs> so so that's what I, I mean, that's what I want. And, th and that's not a unique desire. I mean, that's what, you know, a, a lot of these very stripped down evangelical churches, essentially they're saying, I want Jesus without institutions, right? Mm -hmm. I want the pure Jesus who, you know, sees a leper and wants to heal heal his illness, that well, kind of thing. basic attitude of, of, of Taoism and, and Zen as well. I mean, remember uh, uh, Zen Master Sung Sung uh, kind of kept on saying, how may I help you? How may I help you? Yeah, you I, know, love that, that. I love and, that. And that book, Zen Without Zen Masters uh, by Camden Benares, um, I believe he worked as a manager for a tech company and he also said that that's also one of the best things really a manager can do uh, is just be helpful to enable the people that they manage to do their work fully that's and joyfully. Yep. So how right. may I help you is the basic attitude of a manager and also of anybody who's, you know, spiritually inclined, if you want to put it that way. Uh, so it's, it's outward. It's how may I help you? It's not like I want enlightenment. No. How may I help you? If you that's how that's part of forgetting yourself. You know, and being and being in the world and being a good sort of good positive thing in the world. Uh, Carl Reiner, as you know, just recently died. Alas, what a beautiful, brilliant uh, person he was. But one of the last things he said is that you know my biggest legacy, besides my work and stuff like that, is 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 my kids. The fact that they're not toxic. If you can sort of put out whatever is left after you after you leave, that's not contributing to this negativity in the world, then you can sort of consider yourself a success. And I, you know, very kind of humble, but I think it's true. I think is you, you want to go through this weird and wonderful and horrendous at the same time process of living our lives. You want to give, you want to give and not sort of close yourself off and be sort of like me, me, me. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and I perfectly said, and, and I I feel like I think a lot of times when we think of you know me me me, we think of um, you know uh, capitalist tycoons or or you know mafia underworld types. But what I found was that the me 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 is simply me being locked in my thoughts, and that's why that experience um, at the convenience store in Long Beach is mm -hmm. still so memorable because I was I wasn't locked in you know, the Rob internal dialogue, right? Which right. is, and, and I, I think, you know, honestly, the, there's many reasons I love Proust. Proust is my hero. A lot of people who listen to the podcast know that. But um, 
essentially, you know, his, you know, internal dialogue that Bruce, Bruce is having is very familiar to me, you know? Mm. Um, and, and the reason I prefer Proust to Musil, if you can make such banal distinctions is I'll allow it. Yeah. You know, Proust is, (laughs) Proust is like the genius of, of psychology where Musil is the genius of, you know, philosophy again, to, to really make a crude separation. And, and so, so somehow I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, yeah, connect it to this idea of like self-focus can take many forms. It isn't just the, you know, the archetypal greedy person that we all despise. Mm-hmm. You know, I was listening to um, an old TED talk, which I don't normally do, but it, it was like a, from a tweet and I followed it and it, it looked pretty go- good from the get-go. So I, I kept listening and it was, you know, predictors for a long and happy life. And at the top of it, you know, way better predictor for a long and happy life than, let's say, your blood pressure or 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 even smoking and boozing. The two biggest predictors are, are social connections. How... What kind of people do you have around you, first of all, who are closer to you, the closest family and friends who, let's say, will lend you money if you're in a you know, fix? And But even even a stronger predictor of a long and happy life is the wide, your wider social circle. So when you, see, when you walk down the street, do you make eye contact? Do you say, like you, you talked about going into this convenience store to buy cigarettes, do you sort of engage in a light conversation? Do you just... Do you, how do you sort of exist in your society? Because all philosophies, Eastern and Western, regardless, when they when they start really thinking things through and coming down to the basics, you have Descartes, Spinoza, people like that. They like you know, I think therefore I am fine. That's the first thing. But the next thing is the immediate next thing is how do you relate to others? We don't exist in this world unless you're a solipsist, uh, a committed solipsist. <laughs> which, you know, meaning in in insane asylum, but um, you don't exist in this world alone. We are, are all just all part of this larger organism called humanity. And if we, if we think of ourselves as separate, then we have people like not wearing masks, for instance, is an, a manifestation of that, and not caring about, about your greater community, but it's all one body. We're, we're a species, we're one body, you know, like all mushrooms are basically one body. Yeah. Uh, there could be different different types of mushrooms with it, you know. So it's all. It, I know it's kind of slow no, to say we're all one connected, but it's uh, it seems to be this, the human conditions. First of all, yes, we have this interesting skin around us that makes us all separate, but at the same time, the skin connects yeah. us to the to everything. Yeah, else. You, you know, dude. One of the um, uh, I think one of the great legacies of of being Catholic, and I think you see it reflected in Joyce, particularly. Um, artistic-oriented intellectual Catholics who have a deep experience with the church at some point in their life is the the amazing kind of metaphors that the church gives you. And, and one that comes to mind dovetails exactly with what you're talking about is they speak about the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is actually, right, the, 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 the actual body of Christ that was nailed to a, a cross, right, in sacrifice, uh, to redeem the world. But then the church also speaks about the body of Christ as the body of Christ is made up of every single believer. And so when, when you know, uh, an individual member of the body of Christ, a priest who molests children, um, sins or commits a crime, however you want to 
characterize that. The body of Christ is injured, right? So, so there is no separateness, right? We are all one body, unified in our, you know, belief in Christ. If you're a, if you're a Catholic, and so, so these are, you know, universalisms that continue to appear, um, you know, in our religions and in our our outlooks. Um, and it is interesting that you tie it into the um, the not wearing a mask. It, it's mm, a it's mm. it's a real repudiation of of your sense of community. And it, it's and you know it it is amazing how um, you know we we sort of white people deny the the you know well look slavery was you know uh, you know a long time ago you know why do we continue to to deal with the legacy. And when you hear some person like say that, well, I'm, you know, I'm free. I don't need to wear a mask. Um, it, it really harkens back to this Western frontier world where you had a rancher, you know, in whatever Wyoming who, who was their own universe, you know, but that, that legacy continues in the mindset of many Americans, despite the fact that we're a very crowded country now, right? We all live fairly close together, but it survives. You know, these these cultural legacies continue. Um, and yeah, the mass thing. I, I I don't want to go too far into that, but uh, right. <laughs> um, but but um, yeah. Well, should we, should we so, pivot? Should we pivot a little bit because you, you're talking about uh, Catholicism, and yeah, I was hoping that you know. We're going to talk a little bit about literature as well, because really, yep. really uh, for us, it's the two really are inseparable. And you mentioned the beats, and yep. then we're talking about Catholicism, and I was thinking about uh, folks like Thomas Merton, oh, who, yeah. who was um, uh, obviously an enlightened <laughs> enlightened Catholic. Um, he's um, he uh, toured the East. Uh, unfortunately, also was uh, you know met his death uh, on one of this tour, uh, these tours. But uh, he wrote a book about um, on Chuang Tzu, the way of Chuang Tzu, where he kind of transcribed other uh, uh, translations and didn't actually do the translation himself. Uh, he In books like Zen and the Birds of Appetite. So he was really into yep. this kind of stuff. And I think we, we picked it up um, as we kind of read along. But also, you know, people like Thoreau and Emerson and then the Transcendentalists were exposed to the idea of Taoism. I know Thoreau uh, uh, explicitly wrote about it in Emerson. Uh, people like Henry Miller, who uh, to us, I know, for, at least for me, for sure, remains uh, an important figure, an important writer, was uh, soaked in Taoism. He didn't even realize it until later in his life where he found this. So like he goes, whoa, hey, that's me. I'm a Taoist. Um, and and particularly, particularly my absolute, Rob, absolute most beloved a uh, little nook of literature. Uh, it's the ancient uh, Chinese poets. For some reason, I feel like they're my buddies. They're my friends mm. across yep. centuries. Uh, people who retreated from power, who retreated from politics because this was the dragon and you were going to get burned by the dragon. And so they retreated into bamboo groves. They drank wine. They composed poetry. They wrote uh, uh, boats on the lake. Uh, one of them uh, famously was kissing the moon's reflection from a boat when he was drunk and then he drowned. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then the coal mountain. Uh, again, this is going back to our teens, Rob. This is where this is where this whole 
this whole sort yep. of uh, Eastern uh, segment of our consciousness began, um, you know, with Han Shan and Shite, with the Cold Mountain Poets, uh, Gary Snyder, who was so in love with that, um, uh, Kenneth Ruxroth, uh, the 100 Poems from the Chinese, where it was an of instrumental course, yep. book in my, in my uh, youth. Yep. Um, a Zen Mind, like you mentioned, Beginner's Mind by Shunryu Suzuki. I specifically remember, I don't know if you remember the cover of that book, Rob. It was a very neat cover. It was very smooth, kind of the smooth, uh, plasticky covered cover that I just loved to hold in my hands. And I specifically remember having it in my dorm room at UMass. Yeah, and I've got, I actually I've, literally picture it right now. And, uh, and, and, and when you, I've got it right here. When you flip it over, do you remember there's a Big picture of this bald Japanese Zen That's right. Master, right? That's right. That's right. And it's just a pleasure to hold that book. Something about it, right? Something to cover or something. I forget exactly how, why it was uh, tactilely so uh, cool for me to hold. And of course, Thomas Merton, like we mentioned, John Cage. I mean, John Cage, massively, massively influenced by Zen. Uh, his whole aesthetic is, and that's why I continue to get attracted to John Cage's writings on art and his whole aesthetic. Um, and more modern manifestations like like uh, Red Pine, if, if folks really want a great translator and sort of popularizer of uh, of of this, these Chinese poets, uh, Red Pine, who's uh, that's a the pen name for Bill Porter, a wonderful uh, individual who's traveled in China, lived in Taiwan, he's fluent in Chinese, he's got these wonderful travelogues, uh, uh, travel books uh, uh, about China and like finding you know old graves of uh, old Chinese poets. And you know what, Rob, he's massively, massively popular in China. All of his books has been translated to Chinese. <laughs> and he's like a celebrity in China. Whenever he goes, people like meet him on the, on the streets and like, oh, Bill Porter, Red Pine. Um, because he sort of like showed the Chinese, their own sort of history of this has kind of been sort of neglected with, with communism and everything, but this whole history of Chinese hermits, you know, retreating into the mountains and continuing this Taoist tradition. Um, so I really, really enjoy Red Pine's books. Uh, you can also find uh, some documentaries about his travels on YouTube, uh, worth Googling. And if, if you're into that kind of stuff, uh, some wonderful footage of, of these uh Chinese hermits uh, that he's visited, you know, say 20 years apart and you can see him greeting them again after not seeing them for 20 years. And they're just so happy to see him. This, this absolute, absolute uh, authenticity in their being of, as human beings, you can really see it. Were, were, uh, um, were, were the Chinese poets, were they uh, sort of like mendicant monks? Were they dependent upon charity of the were. locals, the farmers? Some of them were, some yeah. of them were for sure. Uh, some of them were, were pretty high up in the in the Chinese government bureaucracy. And then after 30, 40 years of, of hard work, they would retreat into their bamboo huts somewhere in the mountains and, and write poetry or just, or, just, or just do fasting of the mind. The Taoists didn't call it meditation. They call it fasting of the mind, which I actually prefer. I love that term. Um, so yeah, so there's 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 a range, there's a range. Like like the 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 legendary Cold Mountain Han Shan, um, he was a believe in a minor official that retreated, and then Shi Te, his sidekick, which was probably he was probably fictional, but who knows, was just a, a cook's helper in a monastery. You know, so so a lot of these people were vagabonds. Uh, they weren't part of society, or if there were, they kind of rejected society, uh, the dust of the of the city, and moved away into the clear. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, favorite metaphors, um, I believe Alan Watts used it for a title, is cloud-hidden 
whereabouts unknown. It's from a poem, a Zen poem. And I just love that metaphor of being cloud hidden, whereabouts unknown, which again goes back to my excitement of being at the Rockies. As soon as I start approaching these mountains, I get this this kind of, uh, this kind of like this, I let, let my, my inner being kind of unfurls and relaxes a little bit more and I can breathe easier. And by the way, by the way, people who live in higher altitudes tend to live much longer than people who live at sea level. <laughs> I don't know why it is exactly. Um, but it's interesting to note that. Mm-hmm. Um, so at one point, I'm hoping that I will, in my old age, when when I'm all gray and 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 sort of done with the dust of the world, I'm I would retire to a mountaintop. But you know, <laughs> flat is good too. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, Kerouac. Let's go back to the beats. Some of the Dharma. Right, beautiful book, which, by the way, I don't know if you have it, but I certainly have it. It's now yours. Um, a b- yeah, beautiful book and, and, about his, his sort of exploration of Buddhism, though he really kind of fell off the horse later on with alcoholism and then going back to Catholicism. He did, um, but the, 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 the remarkable thing about that book, and it shows the, um, the, the friendship that they had and also the fact that um, there weren't as many texts available in the 1950s. Essentially, that book is Kerouac writing a textbook in a sense to Ginsburg, if I'm not mistaken, to help him um, understand the, you know, metaphysics of Buddhism, so to speak. I mean, he essentially wrote a book for his friend. I mean, it's amazing, um, amazing to think about that. I, I love the physical aspect of the book. It's it's an oversized uh, kind of a paperback paperback book that's, that's just be- be- beautiful edition. Um, and some of the haiku Kerouac wrote is very, very much uh, in the Zen spirit. Of course, haiku to begin with is uh, – oh, let me mention another uh, an interesting Zen novel, The Three-Cornered World, which I believe there's another title for it in Japanese. Soseki? Yeah. Yes, yes, Soseki, Natsume Soseki. Uh, I, it's called a haiku novel uh, by some people. So it's kind of an interesting designation, obviously contradictory, contradictory, but um, – uh, a wonderful, quiet book that packs a punch. It really does. This was the a book that uh, was discovered, I believe, uh, next to uh, uh, when Glenn Gould died. It was by his bedside. That book. So we know he was uh, he was uh, into it. Um, so I think it's hard to separate for me Taoism, or at least my my love of Taoism and my I don't want to say attempt, but my embodiment of it or I'm trying to embodiment of you know, mm. to embody that kind of life is is inseparable from literature which is mm. why I, uh, you know feeling bookish our podcast with the word feeling is is right there it's it, again I can't separate it from this this um, what what Raymond Smullyan called what what he his definition of Taoism is I hear I wrote this down here for a second to me right Smullyan Taoism means a state of inner serenity combined with an intense aesthetic awareness. Neither alone is adequate, right? A purely passive serenity is kind of dull, and an anxiety-ridden awareness is not very appealing. But when you combine them, you have this intense aesthetic awareness, but also on, a, on the bedrock of inner serenity, um, you really have something wonderful. And Rob, I, before we finish, I have to tell you something. Now, we've seen Zen masters, we've been around Zen masters, we felt some of that energy, right? Yeah. Of like, wow, there's something really extraordinary here this yep. person uh even though it's completely ordinary they're just you know they're just a person 
the the one and only time that I've truly felt like I was in the present presence of a sage is when I would hang out, would go visit Raymond Smullyan. Um, at the time, but I, I really didn't even know he was alive because I was such a big fan of his books in my teens and twenties. I, you know, it, it, when I hit my forties, I obviously thought he was gone already because you know he was on the Johnny Carson show in 1982 for crying out loud. He already looked old. But <laughs> I, then my friend convinced me to like try to find him. Maybe he's, he's around still, and he was. And I called him. I get the guts to call him, and he just was completely natural and and friendly with me and invited us up and then we would start visiting we visited him a bunch of times before he passed away and every time every time rob i would come to his house in upstate new york mm. this beautiful little house with two grand pianos in there because of you know the classical pianist him and his wife before she passed away uh his brother built this little rickety house that just so cozy with a zillion books in there um and just being in his presence was so much not even fun. It was just enriching. It was enriching. He would, wherever he would go, he would put smile. People would just smile around him. People would just be open to him because he was just open to everything. It was just so inviting and not, it was just like a true sage. I really never felt anything around that, well, around you, other people like that. He was a, a mentor and, and you got to meet yeah. a mentor. That's very lucky. You, I mean, you're, you're very lucky. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was a yeah. true mentor for me, spiritually and philosophically, and I recommend to all of our listeners all of his books. Um, I mean, he was a, a, a mathematician, so there's a lot of kind of a Godelian puzzle books he was famous for. Martin Gardner, who wrote the ma mathematical puzzle uh, column for Scientific American for something like four decades. They were great, great, good friends. Um, but I particularly like Raymond's uh, books on uh, spirituality. Um, uh, particularly Taoism and his whole approach to religion. He was very, very interested in religion. But as he kept on telling people, you know, he wasn't raised in a religious household, thank God. Uh, <laughs> he was just never stuck to anything. He never he never got attached to things and he would just examine things. It's, it's such a beautiful soul with fi a funny approach and, and an extremely sharp mind. I mean, this guy was sharp. You know, he wrote the book on first order logic, literally. You can, Dover editions, a cheap edition of first order logic by Raymond Smolian. You can go and buy it right now. It's the textbook for that. Um, so it, he wasn't some sort of, you know, navel gazer who was just like, oh, Taoism, spirituality. No, this guy was, a, <laughs> was very much a logical positivist in, in some sense. He was very much an Apollonian, not a Dionysian, you know, but but he combined these two things and then he he let them have their space. Uh, one of the stories that he tells, I'll be very quick, Rob, because I, I want you to also speak, but uh, one of the stories that he tells about that he kind of held to his heart for many years and tells his readers about many of his books is this um this lady was shopping in like a like a little store like a bodega and every day she would steal something she had this habit you know she she was an older older lady and she would just take something um and then you know and then this person noticed it and then he comes up to the shopkeeper he goes hey you see her taking stuff how come you're not stopping her and he goes you know well she's just this lady who, who would just be horrified, horrified if I caught her. So I would just, you know, I'm just letting her do it because it's fine by me. And this kind of approach of like seeing something wrong, but it's because the the greater thing is right. You do the greater thing that's right. You don't take the next step of the immediate gratification of grabbing, nabbing her and making her pay for it or shaming her. 
you take that bigger approach of like, you know, it's okay. It's okay. In, in the greater context, this is the right thing to do. And how often do we not do that? How often do we take that immediate step of this is mine? Don't take that. Or, you know, this is wrong. Instead of just taking a breath and looking at the greater context and seeing maybe that's from the viewpoint of heaven, as Chuang Tzu would say, is this the right thing to do? You know, and that's walking two roads. Again, it's a paradoxical thing where you exist in the practical world. You have to sell things. You have to make money. But then the other road is you have to sort of take it in the greater context. And is this really the right thing to do? Tough thing to do walking two roads, but it's the only way to exist, I think. Mm. You know. Nicely said, man. Yeah. Um, intuition over perception. You, you value intuition over your immediate perception. Mm. You know, and again, this goes back to all these guys, Henry Miller, all these writers that we admire, Gary Snyder, they have this sense. They, they transmit it through the literature, which is why we love that literature so much. Um, I just wish I did start learning Chinese at one point in college. I learned how to write the, the, the Chinese character for my name, for Roman. Uh, and of course, we had that friend, Jeremy, who uh, did take Chinese in college and went to Taiwan and yes. became fluent. Uh, yep. He kind of stole my thunder a little bit. <laughs> but it would have been nice to know because Chinese as a language, I think, lends itself more to this kind of openness and, and ambiguity uh, as, as opposed to, you know, uh, more of a uh, an alphabet based uh, kind of language, which is tries to dig out the meaning and and fix it with a nail, you know, fix it to the wall. But meanings, these meanings are never fixed, as, as Chuang Tzu reminds us, they're not, they're, it's always a flux state. So what's true today? Not necessarily true tomorrow. Mm. If you don't adjust, you're stuck. Then you're then you're again. One of my favorite. I'll just let me throw this one story and I'll shut up. Um, one of my favorite stories about you know Zen stories is these two monks traveling from monastery to monastery, and very strict rules for monks not to interact with with women. And they come across a, a woman on the road, and she is standing in front of this big mud puddle, and she can't cross it in her pretty dress. So one of the monks, not not thinking, nothing, no, 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 not thinking about the rules of not interacting with women, just picks up the women on his back, woman on his back, carries her across the mud, puts it down, and the two monks keep walking to the other monastery. So this other monk who saw this happen is he can't stop thinking, 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 oh my God, he did this. I can't believe he broke our rules. How how can he even live like this? This is, you know, he's not even thinking, he's not even talking to me about this. So finally he breaks down and goes, dude, man, what what happened back there? We have strict rules not to not to do this. And the, and the other monk goes, well, you know what? I put that woman down back there. How come you're still carrying her? <laughs> yeah. So it's this unstuckness, this this fluidity keep flowing with the water uh, metaphor, uh, which is so important. Yeah. And, and you know, it makes me think of um, the, I assume, apocryphal story of, um, you know, the Buddha. He's, he's on some mountaintop or something, and he... Um, he has all of his disciples or, or wannabe students, and they've come presumably to hear, you know, a, a sermon that will that will enlighten them. Right. They're, they're waiting. And so they're, they're basically saying, you know, Buddha, you know, what is enlightenment? Tell us. And, um, you know, he he simply holds out um, a flower. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, 99 out of 100 of the people there have a puzzled look while, you know, one. Right has whatever a smile and there's a kind of transmission transmission between buddha, exactly it between um the buddha and that disciple that 
um, so it, it's it's as a as a person uh, of words, uh, speaking, writing, uh, a person of books. Um, that was another aspect of my exposure to Zen, um, which was really helpful and an important reminder of some of the limitations of language, which I know is a particular favorite subject of yours. Um, well, yes, we could, because we because could probably of, do a whole podcast on right, that. Right, because but, we, that's all we talk about is because we, do, yeah. we're, we're, we love literature, and of course, that's that's language. And so we, that just like with that philosophical approach, first of all, is that as you realize that you're thinking or some sort of a being, the next step is you're a being as part of this larger society of beings. Same thing with language. First of all, we sort of like, what is language? What is it trying to tell us? And then you realize that the larger context is unfixed, but you have to have that context. Um, I, I recommend uh, Hakim Bey, uh, who wrote the famously the Temporary Autonomous Zone uh, uh, essays, um, kind of a radical leftist, uh, independent Western scholar, has a wonderful essay, even though it's a little a little dry and a little academic. I highly recommend for anybody interested in Wittgenstein uh, language and what language can express or cannot express uh, his essay on Zhuangzi. Uh, it's called Zhuangzi's uh, Chaos Linguistics. Just Google that. It's available online. Um, again, dealing with this whole language thing. Um, but but you have to you have to go through this gate. Our our gate is language, right, Rob? We we love love. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I love these ancient Chinese poets because of they left something. They left this this something behind. These little breadcrumbs showing what kind of life they had. Um, we get a little taste of that as yeah. as 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 difficult as it is to do because we're, we're separated by a thousand years here, maybe twelve hundred years here, eight hundred years. That's a lot of years, a lot of years. And as we see with with things like the monotheistic religions or just any religion that, that that tends to hold on to their heritage and really try to sort of like not change, it becomes ossified and dead pretty quickly. Um, which is again another reason why I highly recommend uh, Scott Bradley's take on, on, on modern philosophical Taoism. It's so plain, very plain language, but in modern, sort of couched in modern terms, and he's just, you can see him thinking through things but also without being attached, and and I just love it. Um, so, but we have to go through language. We have mm. to go through language. That's our that's our flow. That's our water, our medium. Yeah. Yep. And and you know some some of um, some of the folks listening um, may also be writers or aspiring writers. And if you're um, thinking about Zen or you're involved with Zen and you're also trying to write, um, I can recommend a book that was very influential on me. Um, it's writing an older down book bones. at this point. Yeah. Writing down the yeah. bones by Natalie Goldberg. So Natalie Goldberg was a, a Zen teacher and, um, also I believe some kind of creative writing teacher. And so she combined the two. And, um, so I think inadvertently or not inadvertently, but in some way she, she deals with, you know, language and her practice. Um, and so some folks might, might find that useful. Um, and if we're talking about, um, some of this represented in a in a fine novel. I think you'd also have to throw out Kerouac's Dharma Bums, which mm. is based on his relationship with Gary Snyder, who, you know, we should almost do an entire podcast on Gary Snyder, Roman, because of the nexus of literature, um, the environmental movement, 
the 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 renewal of Americans idea of nature that started to happen in the 60s and also this important pioneer of of Zen in America um, he was right at the center of those you know three really important developments and uh, he's still alive he lives in Northern California um, and a product of Oregon so um, yeah he was an a, Oregon boy originally right yeah right. he right went to uh, he went to Reed College and it was um, an experience climbing up on Mount Hood where he understood that, um, you know, nature and the wilderness were going to be massive um, parts of his life. And he's the one who introduced Jack Kerouac to to hiking and encouraged him to get um, the Firewatch Tower position at uh, Desolation Peak right. in Washington State up near the uh, Canadian border where Kerouac um, had a bit of a breakdown, probably be the best way to put it, but <laughs> pivotal, pivotal, cultural, religious, and literary figure, uh, poet, uh, et cetera. So, well, dude, yeah. I, 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 I feel like we, 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 uh, reached the end dug, of the flow. Yeah. States. <laughs> we dug up some, some, some good stuff, man. Um, so, uh, I, I think we'll have to talk more about Zen maybe offline too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Get the butt but, back on the Zafu cushion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I think that's it. And and uh, it's been fun talking. And, uh, you know, uh, good luck getting settled back on the West Coast. We'll talk soon. And uh, thank you to Heston Hoffman. Yeah, thanks, And uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. And remember, um, you can find us on Twitter, at FeelBookish. And I also encourage folks, if you can, to go to Apple Podcasts and to uh, leave a review for us. That's really helpful for us. Okay, thanks so much. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.